I have a seven-year-old sister. She came home from school last Monday, crying. When I asked why, she said to me, people are blaming me in school for the Paris attacks. She said, I don't want to go back. I have a brother in year seven. He got bullied last week. People are telling him, your religion is killing people. This is something I have to go through every day. People link us to terrorism, but we are not terrorists. They have hijacked our religion and used it against us. I was in Tesco's just last week. I walked in. The guy was like, these are the people we want out of our country. These are people you don't want around. So imagine if that was you coming into my country and I'm treating you this way. How would you feel? So what can we do about it? We can learn about each other's religions and cultures. We can stop making assumptions. We can be fair to one another. I remember, when you tell someone you are a terrorist because of your religion, it's a hate crime, and you have to report it once you view it. My name is Isra Muhammad. I am Muslim, and I am not a terrorist. Thank you. That's the voice of Isra Muhammad, our special guest today on the Speakola podcast. And she was speaking to her school, the Kenton School, in December of 2015, just a few weeks after the Paris attacks that killed 130 people, ISIS attacks in France in November of 2015. And Isra Muhammad responded to some Islamophobia that she suffered and her family suffered by giving a speech, What is Islam? to the entire school. And that'll be our feature speech for today. We are nudging up on Christmas, and if you want to support me and the podcast, I started a new website, TonyWilsonAuthor.com, and if you check that out, it's got all my books. You can buy any of my picture books or middle grade reader books, or 1989, The Great Grand Final, and even my novels are up at TonyWilsonAuthor.com. If you want to support the podcast, we take subscriptions or Patreon support, and we're very grateful for them. If you look in the show notes, you'll see a link to Patreon. Um, It's patreon.com forward slash speakola. Or if you don't think you need to subscribe to one more thing, but you would like to just make a donation, go to speakola.com forward slash donate. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory. I understand sacrifice. Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land. With Tony Wilson. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Speakola podcast. November, Melbourne is out of lockdown. We're all pretty happy. I'm actually sitting in a car. My friend Tony Martin, who makes the masterful Sizzletown podcast, once told me that the car is almost as good as the professional recording studio. And hopefully the people in the retirement home opposite aren't thinking I'm some sort of CIA agent or ASIO operative or secret policeman or some such unsavoury type that could be disrupting their morning tea here in Abbotsford. 
Look, I've loved making this episode of the podcast. This is a really entertaining and interesting interview with Isra Muhammad. She was a schoolgirl when she delivered her viral speech back in 2015. It truly went around the world, over 100,000 views on YouTube and up to a million views on Facebook, who I've always thought, well, they're not very discerning as to what is actually a view. You can rack up the numbers on Facebook, but a million is a lot in any event. A few weeks previously, ISIS had committed the Paris attacks, a night of terror in the French capital where 130 people died, hundreds more injured, some many critically. It was a shocking tragedy. The world was rightfully appalled. But one of the unfortunate byproducts was a surge in Islamophobia, fueled by a press that's well aware that fear sells, and especially fear of minorities. And Isra Muhammad and her family felt some of that firsthand, and that became the subject matter of this famous speech. We do have a sponsor, the Podcast Reader. It is transcripts, lightly edited, of long-form podcasts. Reading's a great way to engage with the sometimes overlooked information of this wonderful new resource, the long-form podcast. And if you're interested, this edition, edition four, has interviews with Graham Allison, who was on The Jolly Swagman in 2021, Nikolai Tangen, Why Everyone Should Study Social Psychology. He was on Money Maze 2021. Roya Hakakian was on Econ Talk. David Sinclair, How Long Would You Like to Live? He was on The Good Life in 2018. And perhaps most famously, Malcolm Gladwell, To Make the World Safe for Mediocrity, was on Conversations with Tyler in 2017. So if you're a fan of the long-form podcast, or if you want to have some recommended to you, go to podread.org forward slash speakola, offer code speakola, and you'll get yourself three months free of the PDF edition of the magazine, or stump up and grab yourself the physical copy. It's a fantastic mag. Well, I'm looking forward to this one. I think our oldest interviewee on the Speakola podcast was Neil Kinnock, the leader of the UK Labor Party. And we interviewed him late at night one night uh, when he was 79 years old. And today I think I'm speaking to my youngest ever Speakola interviewee, and that is Isra Muhammad. Hello, Isra. Hi, how are you? And Isra, how, is it rude to ask how old are you? Oh, no, it's not rude at all. I'm 21 years old. 21 years old. Now, and the amazing thing is that you're 21 years old and we're going to be talking about a speech that you gave six years ago. So, it's kind oh, of, yeah. you were a true babe in arms when you gave this speech. Um, it's it's, it's <laughs> yeah. incredible. And, and hopefully we can talk about speaking in schools and how school students can, can give great speeches. But um, tell us a little bit about yourself now. Where, where are you? Where are you speaking to us from? So, I'm currently in Newcastle in England. I'm a university student. I'm in my second year of pharmacy. And yeah, that's where I'm at at the moment. Well, take us back to 2015. What, what was this speech and what was the moment, I guess, in, in world history and, and why did this speech take off? Um, so this happened back in 2015 um, in December 
Um, it was during uh, the unfortunate Paris attacks that happened back then. Unfortunately, me and my brother faced some backlash and bullying at school for what happened in Paris. At the start, you know, I always knew stuff like this happens. You know, I, I faced bullying in the past, racism, Islamophobia in the past, and I thought it would blow over. But unfortunately, it didn't. And it got to the point where, you know, my brother was beat up in school by some kids, you know, just based on the fact his surname being Muhammad. And I went home and spoke to my mum and spoke to my dad and they encouraged me, you know, you should speak to the school about this. And that's exactly what I did. I went to our head of year, which is the person who's usually in charge of our year group. And at the time I was in year 11 and I spoke to them and I said, you know, you need to educate the kids in school about religion and what Islam's really about so they have a better understanding of what's going on. And they said that they would do that. And they suggested that maybe a student should carry out the speech, you know, because the students, it might resonate more with them since it's, you know, a pupil in their school that's carrying out the speech. So I said that I would give it a go and that's okay. I came home and my parents helped me out. My friends helped me out, you know, putting a speech together, a PowerPoint together. Then my parents went through it. I gave the speech to them at home in the living room and they're like, okay, this looks great. That's fine. And um, so, yeah, I went into school the next week. And then from Monday on into Friday, I gave the speech every single day to all the year groups. And our school was from year seven all the way to six formers, which are um, 18 year olds. So it started from really young. So by the end of the week, the school asked if they could put the video on the school's YouTube channel. And I thought, you know, it has 32 subscribers. No one's going to see this. Of course you can. You know, that's no problem. Um, So they popped it on there. And after that, my friends started sharing on Facebook, you know, sharing the YouTube link over and over again. And within the weekend, I remember going to sleep on the Friday night, waking up on Saturday morning, having over 99 plus friendship requests on Facebook. And I was like, whoa, what's happening? Like, what is going on? And I realized everyone's been sharing it. So I went to school on Monday and I remember being in English class and exams were going to be soon and everyone's getting ready for the GCSEs. And I got pulled to go to the principal's office and I thought, oh, what have I done? I can't remember doing anything wrong. I wonder why I'm going to principal's office. And when we went up there, there was um, a couple of newspapers, the Chronicle, you know, um, BBC, ITV. They were all there asking if they could interview me. And everyone wanted to get, you know, in there first to get the article first before everyone else. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, what's happening? And they had to ring my mom. Was, do you give permission for her to do this? And mom was like, yeah, it's fine. Let's go for it. So, yeah, that's how it started. And then ever since, I've been doing interviews and the BBC came and interviewed me at school and I had an amazing mentor, um, my English teacher, actually called Mrs. Griffiths. And she helped me through everything. Um, She helped, she dealt with all the emails. (laughs) She was my little manager, dealt with all my emails, all the requests that were coming through school. And from there, it just, you know, at the start, it was just a UK thing. And then over time, people would send me articles from Paris and from Italy and China. And they're like, oh, look, the articles made it all the way here and it made it all the way there. And, you know, I, I, um, I wasn't surprised. I knew there's always going to be negative comments, but the positivity was very overwhelming. It was amazing to see so many people finally understanding because the speech was very minor. You know, it just explained what Islam is and how it shouldn't be associated with terrorist groups and stuff like that. So it was really great and it brought me so many great opportunities um, through that speech. So this is the Red Card, which is a anti-racism campaign set up here. They reached out to me and I became their youngest and first ambassador, youth ambassador, which is amazing. You know, I get to do such amazing work with young kids. And then um, this past year, I got to um, run for council in Newcastle. Um, I came third, which is really great. Um, yeah. Had about 1,017 votes. I thought that was wonderful. So, yeah, it's been a good, great journey, <laughs> great journey so far. Well, 
Well, you've covered almost all my questions, Israel, in one answer. Was, um, <laughs> you certainly have the gift with words. So if you, if you take us back, do you, remember, do you remember the attacks happening? Was it the sort of thing where as, oh, yes. a, as a Muslim, as a young girl or, or as a young Muslim woman, you feel it and you know, oh, no, you know, this is coming again. We've had it before yes. and it's coming again. And, and can you talk about your reaction to that and even how the experience unfolded in the days that followed? Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, w- my household is one of those households that always has the news on, you know, in the evening to have a look at what's happening. And I remember seeing what was happening in Paris and my heart went out to everyone, absolutely devastated at what happened. And it was very quick switch from, you know, oh, look at what's happening, it's so upsetting, to, you know, let's blame it on this ethnic minority and this religion, you know, switched around and it, um, overall and to me I was really upset because I, I thought terrorist groups were hijacking the religion you know they're using it as a way to you know get away with everything to have someone to blame it on so I was devastated you know me and my family it was just such a difficult time I remember like my mum used to, used to wear the headscarf and she took it off because she was like I'm scared that if I go outside you know something's gonna happen to me and it was happening you know people were getting pushed in front of trains and metros and cars and people were getting beat up for no reason so it was a way to protect yourself so to me um it really upset me having to see my mum you know tear something of her identity away you know put something to the side that means so much to her for her own safety so you know it's every time I hear of an attack happening I just think oh god I wonder what's going to happen like who's going to be affected by this because you know as much as it affects it affects everyone really it does it really does affect everyone and it was such an unfortunate time it was it was really difficult because I knew the backlash that a lot of just not me but a lot of Muslim community was going to face and what about your your brother who was in year seven it's a one-line moment in the speech but what happened that day um, that day, um, so our school was very big and I would wait for my brother outside next to this tree for him to finish to come out um, because sometimes I would finish early which would wait for our mum together to get a left home and i have been waiting and waiting for ages and he hadn't made it yet and my mum came and I was like, mum, he's still not here. Um, so we went inside and he was actually at um, a head of year's office and it turned out um, the boys pushed him around and, you know, hurt him a lot, you know, physically and he had, you know, bruises on his back and stuff like that and he said that they they told him you know your name is the reason everything's happening like people like it's people like you you know you're the reason all this um hate is happening in the world and obviously bless his soul he's really young he didn't understand like what that meant so uh it was really really upsetting and he went home and he didn't want to go to school for a while because he was scared and you know and the thing is our school was very supportive when it came to that sense you know they worked really hard to make him comfortable make him to integrate back into school afterwards and I think um, giving the speech also helped a lot of the boys who were involved in the incident to understand the difference, you know, and to finally get again a better understanding of Islam itself um, so that they're not judging him just based off that. And your younger sister also, you mentioned her in the speech. Is this yeah. in the same, did, did that happen before or after you, you made the decision to speak, the, the abuse that went to a little seven-year-old girl? Um, and that was definitely before the speech that happened, you know, um, she attended a school that was, um, you know, she 
black children and Muslim children were the minority, you know, you could count them on your fingers. So over time, we realized my parents were facing backlash. She was facing a lot of backlash, a lot of hate in school. I know it was really difficult for a child to comprehend this. And it's the fact that other children, it was children were saying it, but so were the parents, you know, and it was all based on ignorance. So the best decision was to transfer schools um, to a school, um, you know, with more kids who would be like her or more kids, you know, would less bullying or something like that and she did and she got to a better school and she's doing so much better now which is it's really great to see so tell us about your parents they're obviously you know very i guess proactive and also deep thinking and they think of solutions the the fact that they recommended this course of action for you they must have known that you were up for it oh yeah and they must have also had that that kind of, I guess, that indignation and that ability to 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 really say how can how can we make this a bit better? Um, tell yeah. us about them and tell us about your um, cultural background. Uh, what sort of home um, did you grow up in? Yeah, so I'm by cult- uh, ethnicity. I'm Sudanese, um, but I did grow up outside of Sudan. Um, so both my parents, my dad's actually a doctor, and my mum is the best mum in the world, full time mum. So they are very proactive in our lives. You know. The thing is, there's a lot of stigma, you know, with parents being, you know, very strict and stuff like that. I would say my parents, not very strict, but, you know, they guide you in the right direction, stuff like that. Um, We grew up in a household, you know, where me and my sister were, you know, you're feminists, you know, you believe in women's rights and stuff like that. And um, we were all brought up to have an open mind and to ask questions, you know, why this and why that? And to, you know, never be scared to ask those questions and brought up to know that we could literally be anything in the world we wanted so from a young age i wanted to win a nobel peace prize so when my parents knew i could deliver that speech like you do that speech you can do that um so um i know my parents are very amazing they're very involved in our life very supportive um always happy for us to do whatever it takes to get us to where we want to be so i had amazing childhood all my siblings i have and it's been great growing up you know even here where Sometimes people think we forget the sense of having our Sudanese culture. We still do have that as part of our life at home. And we go back to Sudan as much as we can to visit family. So we haven't lost that essence of our culture. But at the same time, we have also learned and integrated into British culture as well. So, you know, you get to learn a variety of things and rather than just stick to one thing, which is really great. And what about God, I guess? Is there, because I always think I've got friends who are, you know, they, they regard themselves as quite strongly Jewish. And and yet I sometimes wonder, you know, how much the prayer and the belief in God is central to their being so much as the wider being Jewish, you know, the yeah. the holidays, the festivals, the friendship yeah. groups. The How do you feel about that balance? Is, is God central to you? or, or Oh, is, yes, definitely. Are, yeah. Definitely. They're very, very central in our household, you know. Right now, you probably can't hear the Qur'ans on downstairs. For my mum, it's a ritual. Every Friday, she puts the Qur'an on all day. Um, so, yes, um, religiously, our life is very centred around religion as well. It, it's great. And I think the way my parents came about teaching us about religion is, is really great. You know, they taught us everything correctly. And I feel like sometimes people aren't taught everything correctly. I remember mentioning in my speech about the headscarf. I know it is mandatory and I need to wear it at some point and I should be wearing it. However, if my dad was to tell me you need to wear the headscarf, I'd be like, I'm not doing it for the right reasons. And they know that they can't force me to do something because I wouldn't be doing it for the right reason. I need to be doing it. It's something, a relationship between me and God. 
to me they're always like whenever you're ready to fully commit that's when you need to do it and I think that's really great you know because they're letting you build that relationship to your religion rather than forcing you into something um straight away so how does that work what's the, what what is how does it represent a relationship with god um with women how, what 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 is the you know why a hijab why, yeah so yeah so, so, so can you explain to me the the decision making for you now yeah so um the hijab is all about modesty um you know it's dressing modestly and the hijab um is actually for men and women they both should be modest and it's the way to represent your religion and yourself to be modest as a muslim i think it's great and I feel as though in order to wear the hijab, you have to always be representing your religion. Um, you have to fully commit to it. And it's something you should build over time whenever you're ready. Um, I'm not going to lie. There was times I was ready to do it, but I was genuinely scared of what was happening around the world and the backlash I would face, you know, if I were to, you know, take this next step and put on my hijab. Um, however, I think in the coming years, it's definitely something I'm going to be doing. But it's all about modesty and protecting yourself, you know, because your body, you know, is your temple at the end of the day. So the hijab, you know, people always assume it's just for men. I mean, just for women, but it's for men and women. You know, it's for both of them. It, that's what it says in the Quran is both men and women should always practice modesty. So, yeah. You had the chat with your parents and, and you decided this could be a way of, of you know, helping your brother and helping yourself process what had, what had happened in Paris and, and, and what had, the result had been for your family. Um, what yep. happened next? Was the did you s- sort of start writing it with your teacher, or did you sit down at home and st- t- tell us a little bit about the writing process? The writing process. So the, my whole idea of the speech was, what is Islam? You know, that's the big question. What is the religion in itself? Because you know, there's so many misconceptions through the media that are always being put out, and they're false. You know, a lot of false facts out there. So my idea was, what is Islam? And I know to describe it in a way that's easiest for me to understand as well as everyone else. So I sat down with a friend of mine and we started writing it together. And I said, this is what I want to say. And this is how we should say it. And once we got a script ready, um, you know, she read over it and like cleaned it up. You know, she's like, maybe we should switch to this and switch to that. And then it was great. The process was, you know, to explain to people what Islam is, which were the five pillars of Islam and then speak to people about what happened in Paris attacks and the attacks that are committed by terrorist organisations and how they have hijacked that religion to use it, you know, as a smokescreen for their actions and then just tie at the end to show them that even in the Quran it states, you know, killing innocent people is not permitted. So what they're doing in terrorist organisation is not practising the religion correctly, even if they said they were Muslims, which I, to me, they are not. So, yeah, that was the process. You know, you, you get your idea of what you want to write about because I still have to give speeches all this day, unfortunately. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I always have to sit down and write one. <laughs> it's actually a lot of fun. So you, you get your question, what is you going to write about? And you break it down just like you would write an essay. It's just a smaller paragraph. You know, you have your introduction, introducing what you're going to speak about. You, you have, you know, an argument in the middle of, why do people think this and how we can resolve the issue and why people should become more educated. And then your conclusion, you know, tying everything together, you know, helping the person watching you or listening to you to come out of that speech thinking, okay, that makes sense. I understood where you were coming from. And having them to go home and actually research, that's the best part. Because if you get them questioning some things, they're going to go home and research those things. So that's that's the aim at the end of the day. 
And you interwove that with personal anecdote as well. And I think, because I guess people don't really want to just hear the Encyclopedia Britannica read out as to what things are. They want to feel as though the person delivering to them is living this life and experiencing this situation and and I guess that and that's why this speech went around the world oh yeah definitely because I knew so many kids were going to be able to relate to me and my situation I wasn't the only one you know I wasn't the only Muslim kid who was facing backlash for something I had no idea I had nothing to do with um so that is a great part of it you know personal story you know having someone to be like this has happened to me too I know who this is because if you tell your story one of the 10 times, you know, they have a friend that experienced this, a family member that experienced this, or they themselves have experienced this. And that's what's going to get them thinking, gaining a better understanding. I noticed in one of the many media outlets that interviewed you afterwards that you mentioned uh, Ms. Griffiths. And Ms. Griffiths, I think you said she helped you structure the speech. Can you remember what she brought to the table? And what did? how did she help the yes. speech? So um, I remember before I went on did the speech, I showed her what I was going to do, what I was going to say. And at the time, she she taught media and film studies and it was one or the other. And she, you know, she understood, you know, that this is the way the media is showing what Islam is and, and how it's wrong and stuff like that. So when I showed her the speech, she thought it was great. And she was a great support system. She told me, don't be nervous. She showed me how to stand at the podium and where to look. And if I was to get nervous, you know, focus on one spot in the back. And um, she was great because I knew without her, I would have been very, very nervous, high anxiety levels. You know, you're speaking to a lot of people. It was just nice to see her in the crowd every time, you know, I got a bit nervous. She was standing there, you know, basically saying the speech with me because she heard it that many times (laughs) um so it was really wonderful just having her with me because I just knew I wouldn't have been able to do it without her she was such a great support system to have at school you decided to use slides and and I guess the images of of Islamophobia in particular the headlines that had run in the UK papers after the after the Paris attacks I mean what are your views on on slides you've given a lot of speeches now do you feel like they can sometimes hold you back or do you you feel like they're they're usually really helpful I think slides can be very helpful if you use majority images and less text because you know you don't want the person to be focused on reading the text because you want them to listen to you so my I would say to you know have the picture or the slide where the person is looking at the picture while you are describing it you know because they're listening to you they're not reading something off a slide which they can forget later but they will always remember what you said and it will resonate with them I think that's really important slides can be a downfall you know if they're like 20 slides long full of text very dense you know very small writing but to me I think a big title and an image and then you speak about that image or a figure or you know an article that's the best way to carry out a speech and you and you're telling me this this speech was actually delivered four or five times I, I so the one we see on on video is one of the recordings but you delivered it yes many times do you feel like you got better is that is that the best delivery you gave that's on the video oh definitely I think, I think it got better because I remember that one was on the Thursday so I gave one after that on the Friday but I think Monday because at some point in that week I gave the speech twice in one day but I think I definitely got better because I got nervous a lot I, I remember being quite shaky you know because I didn't want to make a mistake and I was there were so many people looking at me you know they're all listening to me and I just felt like that's such a huge responsibility so I definitely feel you know, by the time it got videoed, I was, you know, 
fully prepared. I've, I've practiced it so many times now that it can't go wrong. And I think the one that was recorded my was my most powerful one because I was so passionate about it. I didn't have to focus on being nervous rather than just focus on what I was saying. Um, so it was really great, yeah. And and I think the I guess the hatred for ISIS and, and what ISIS does for UK Muslims and and Muslims worldwide and there was a there was a great speech a similar speech given by a personality here in Australia called Walid Ali it was just talking about the perversion and the violence and and the what sits in his stomach as as these people do these things I mean I, I thought you really managed to convey that and have have you had to do that again and again over the years do you feel or do you feel as though the heat has gone out of the debate in recent times i mean is i mean you said you ran for 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 politics is is it a continuing speech for you um it definitely is a it'll always be a continuing speech um when it comes to islamophobia i feel as though you know over time things may be getting better and people are becoming more educated as more muslims are integrating into society and people are gaining a better understanding of everything but I do feel there is a, a massive increase in racism over the past year or two. So, you know, there is there's not a balance just yet. You know, things will get better in one side and then the other side it will tip over. It is an ongoing battle. It's always been an ongoing battle because no matter what, there's always going to be the ignorant person choosing not to listen. And And I feel as though in the past, you know, to be Islamophobic was something that was shameful to people. But with the rise of the fascism, you know, and, and public figures like, like Trump, you know, telling people it's okay to say things like this so publicly has given people the courage to actually come out and be extremely ignorant. You know, like in the past, people would never say the N-word to my face because it's shameful. They would say it behind closed door. But now it's it's normal, you know, to just say it to your face as if nothing's happened. And unfortunately, that's still an ongoing battle. So that really does happen, does it, regularly, does it, for you? Would you say once a week or would you say once every month someone would say that word to you? Uh- I would say that it, it doesn't happen as often as it used to now because, you know, I feel like as though my generation, you know, has been such such um, a movement when it comes to, you know, like Black Lives Matter when that was a, was that when that um, protest was happening with George Floyd. It was such a young generation leading it, including the older generation. But um, I feel like as though it's microaggressions, you know, it's, it's the little things that people say that you will sit back and think about, you know, like as in like, they tell you stuff, you are pretty, but for a black girl, you know, that is a microaggression. Mm. You're telling me you're pretty, I'm pretty, but except only because I'm a black girl, there's a certain um, image to that. So to me, it's the microaggression. I'll notice, you know, people making jokes that can be extremely racist, but it's a joke, you know, get over it kind of thing. Mm. Um, So that is still happening. So even though you'll find ignorant people who will say things very, very horrible things to your face there will be people around you who are giving you these very small you know microaggressions like you're pretty for a black girl i never knew you know black people had nice hair i thought you all had very short shrink hair you know stuff like that and that's still happening still very prominent i'll hear it a couple of times a week in conversations outside the house you know um online on twitter on instagram there are still people out there still making those comments unfortunately and did you find in the aftermath of the speech that there was this lifting of the, the mood in the school? Did it feel as though you carried them with you? Or did you have some people who made your life difficult in the school community in those weeks? 
Oh no, I think after the after the speech, uh, the school was had had become so much better. You know, everyone. I remember, like a lot of people, I got you know cards, you know, saying how amazing my speech was, and it was students and teachers. And I think my school, you know, the best part is how proud they were. They kept telling me, "We're so proud, you know, you've put our school name on the map, you know, um, everyone will know." And it's a great, and it's they've even honoured it by um putting me on their alumni wall, where they have these massive pictures of all their school alumni, and now I'm one of them, you know. Oh, um, nice. so it's just wonderful. It's a great school, I think. You know, they're response was wonderful I know and um students became way more tolerant and even though they were they were respectful you know they're respectful that you they may have different views but there is no need to cause someone any hate just because of that so yeah so tell us the most spectacular celebrity moment that happened in those in those amazing few weeks I mean you said that you arrived at school and you were ushered into a room of press interviews sort of thing but how big did it get? What was the weirdest thing that happened? I think it, it got big. I had a, a book, a children's book about diversity sent to me from Australia, actually. And the author of the book put a message in saying, you know, this one's for you kind of thing. And I thought that was so wonderful. I've got a letter from someone in America and they, they uh, the letter was just filled with them just gushing about how amazing it was. And they just thought it was so great that I was out there, you know, speaking about all these things. And I just thought it was wonderful because I remember receiving that mail um, at school. My school would bring me the mail that people would send. And I remember just opening one of the mail and having that children's book to know that an author, you know, saw the speech and cared so much to dedicate a book and be like, you know, this is the book I wrote. And I just thought it was so great. I want you to have one of the copies. I just thought it was great. It was just wonderful. I was like, yeah, I made it. You look, people are sending me stuff. <laughs> I just thought it was wonderful. <laughs> Do you remember her name? I actually write children's books here in Australia. I might, I might know that author. Oh, I could send you it. I have it downstairs, actually. <laughs> I'll definitely send you it. Um, but yeah, it was just such a great moment. Uh, absolutely. And then, what happened with the rest of school? What, what, what did you sort of set your sights on? And 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 what do you, and how did you end up in pharmacy? So um, with school, I finished school. I went to sixth form, and I went to pharmacy school now. And over the years, I've realised that a lot of countries, um, like Sudan, like my home country, struggle a lot with gaining access to, like, you know, very simple medication sometimes, stuff that is actually very available here in the UK and in Ireland and in Europe in general. So I feel as though the the goal is to one day have a pharmaceutical company that helps third world countries you know, in, a, in a one way or another. And the current running idea is to, you know, recycle drugs, you know, some drugs that are not expired and are not out of date still have to be thrown out due to some, um, you know, policies through the pharmaceutical society. And, you know, something I'm hoping to challenge one day and be like, look, you know, there's so much drugs that we could just recycle and send out, you know, sell a lower price, do anything with it. And that is hopefully the last goal. And, you know, I, I still on that track of helping people, you know, it's never going to stop. Is going to continue for as long as I can. I'll always be there. And for me, it's just wonderful because I've always wanted to help people. I've always wanted to be an activist for equal rights and stuff like that. So to have done it at such a young age, I just feel as though I just got, you know, a head start. So even though my life is just starting, there's just so much more to do, which is just, it's just wonderful to me. I just can't wait to do more. <laughs> Yeah, and and Israel, obviously, the I feel like the words come easily to you, and 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 you ran for 
the Labor Party in the in the local elections there in Newcastle in 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 twenty twenty one was it and yes and you said you came third. Is there a little part of you that thinks ah, oh, you know maybe maybe not pharmacy, maybe sort of Hillary Clinton or something like that. <laughs> um, definitely, you know, it was, I think it was wonderful. Um, the area that I ran for um, council in hadn't had many votes in Labour for years. So for me to get that many votes, it was really great for them. And coming in third to me was a win because, you know, this was my first time being heavily involved in politics. I was able to, I managed to pull that out and I thought it was wonderful. And being in politics, you realise, you know, there's so much available to you and there's so much you can do. So to me, it's definitely something I will still pursue after pharmacy, you know. Um, I feel like I just need my degree under my belt to make sure if anything goes wrong, I still have a job. But at the end of the day, like politics will definitely always be a passion of mine for sure. And you'd speak in the in the speech about your parents giving you the freedom to decide in relation to the hijab and obviously your parents encourage you to give a speech like this and then off you go into politics. Do you feel that there are restrictions on Muslim women that that you haven't felt because of the particular, I guess, the particular personalities of your parents? Do you sometimes look at the religion and think that there are frustrations out there on, on this topic? Yes, I do feel there is because I feel a lot of people forget the, you know, the rights that Islam gave women. You know, we have rights too. And I feel a lot of women get lost in that through the oppression. And that's totally understandable because, you know, I feel as though the older generation has been oppressed so much over the years they've given up. You know, now if my parents sometimes face backlash, you know, or hear a racist comment, they'll just forget about it. They don't challenge it anymore because they're tired of having to challenge it. So to me, my generation should be the generation, you know, to challenge this and really, you know, push for it. Um, My parents, you know, the sky's the limit. You know, you can do anything you want. And I used to always say, um, back in Sudan, there's never been a female president. I'm like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be that female, first female president. And I was like, I was born there, so I have... I have the legal right to do it if I wanted to. And my parents are like, well, there, there's nothing going to stop you now. And um, with Sudan, you know, it's such a great country and it's going through a lot right now with the military coup. So to me, like, I am hoping that one day the country and the civilians will finally be happy for me to be able to step in within the politics and even, you know, do even better for the country. Well, I did see that on your Instagram feed that there's a movement, I think there's a, protest movement going on have they've shut down the internet is that right there's a blackout going on in in there's a blackout um civilians are being killed you know they're they're trying to take over dictatorship again in sudan and you know it's so sad because you know we've come so far in the past two years you know finally slowly you know moving forward with things and um unfortunately it just went back to square one again you know the internet blackout it's hard to get in touch with family um there's no you know anything going in and out of Sudan at the moment. And it's really difficult for people then. My heart goes out to them. I've been to the protests here in the UK, signing petitions, reposting on social media, doing what I can from my end. It's just very, very important, you know, to me that what's happening is just a real, you know, injustice to everyone there. And I am hoping that over time, you know, this will go, this something good will happen. And the people who have taken over the, and the created this dictatorship will be put to justice for sure and in your most recent political life have you given a speech where you sort of think well that was the islamophobia speech i was only a kid i was 15 
but you know I'm I'm getting better at this. Have, have you got a speech that you've really liked that you've you've given in recent times? Um, yeah, so um, obviously I work with Sherrison Red Card a lot and we do sometimes workshops for little kids at school and they always come and they'll ask, you know, kids will ask very interesting questions and, they, you know, they'll ask you questions and stuff like that and um, a lot of the time you realise that ignorance comes from home, from parents, you know, and it's never in my place to tell a child not to listen to their parent. So I give them a little talk and I said, you know, you have your own brain, your own thoughts, you're allowed to think differently and challenge them where where it's right, where it's safe. And, you know, they thought it was great. They were like, yes, great. When I go home, I'm going to tell them that's not right. I think this. And I'm like, good, you're allowed to have your own views as well. And because they would say, should I not listen to my parents? I'm like, of course you should listen to your parents. It's very important to respect your parents. However, you have your own brain, you have your own thoughts, you can develop thoughts too. So that kind of opened their mind because they always thought, you know, how the parents felt, how they should feel. And I told them, you can feel something different if you if that's how if that's what you want to do. And I always liked that because then they'd come now and be like, oh, my mum said it's okay for me to feel this way since it's not like hers. And I'm like, that's great. See, I told you, you can do it. And it just, to me, just opened their mind to this idea. So now every time a little kid asks me, should I not listen to my parents? I'm like, yes, of course you should. But you have your own brain and you should think for yourself too. So it's just a great way, you know, to help educate them at the same time. And do you think it's your sort of, I guess, gift of the gab and even courage that came to you with the ability to give a speech like this? Is that your mum more than your dad or your dad more than your mum? Is there is there one that's more the activist, more the, more the speaker? Um, I would say it's definitely both of them. They're both very politically active, especially in Sudanese politics. Um, but I wouldn't say there's one or the other. I think both of them, you know, they're very outspoken people, you know, they're always standing for people's rights. They're always, you know, there for me when I need them. So I would say that the courage that came was from both of them. You know, it was like a co-parenting decision to always push us to do our best and to always encourage us to do what we can. So for me to gain that courage, I would say it's both my parents. It's something something from both of them that I was lucky enough to gain for sure. And is there a speaker especially on a topic like Islamophobia or, or a Muslim speaker that stands out in your pantheon. You know, I was I was brought up with speeches of Martin Luther King and speeches of Robert Kennedy and speeches of Gough Whitlam here in Australia, uh, Paul Keating. Is there someone, who are your heroes that you think? I would do- say one of the biggest people is Malala for sure, you know, seeing her speech and what she went through and for her to become such an amazing activist growing up as I saw her in the media and she I, I've always wanted to be like her you know um she's I think she's wonderful um she's definitely you know one of my heroes I would say and how serious are you about the Sudanese presidency would you go back would you would you go I, there I think- soon and and actually become part of the you know, be involved there, or, or is is your life Newcastle and the UK and 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 local? Oh no, I would say never say never. Everything's possible. I think once I finish uni, there is many possibilities out there for me. So I wouldn't rule it out. <laughs> and and I know, here I am, six years down the track, getting you on a speeches podcast. But how often does this little thing in your past, or big thing in your past? You know, does it follow you around a little bit? What have you been reminded? Oh of yeah, it? definitely. It follows me around all the time. I feel 
majority of the places I go to, people are like, oh, I saw your speech back when I was in school. My school showed your speech. And I'm like, oh, that's good. Even just yesterday, I was at the supermarket and someone said that to me. They were like, oh, I saw your speech. You're that girl who speaks one Islamophobia. I'm like, yeah, that's me. Even when you sent me the message to get me on your podcast, I told my mum and she was like, oh, still happening six years later. And I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> well, do you know what, Israel, I've got a sense that you're – You'll give another speech that will will dwarf your fifteen year old speech. I think you're you're incredibly uh, talented and uh, and driven and intelligent and and we we are expecting amazing things. In fact, I need you to become the president of Sudan because you've got no idea how big this episode will become on Speakola. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely. <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate Thank you coming on. Oh, thank you. I think it was it was, such, it was amazing. I really enjoyed this. Thank you for sharing my story. Thank you. Speakola. Well, I am in the car, and I don't have my green skin and purple skin avocados helper in Jack Wilson. He will be disappointed. He's back at school now that lockdown's over. If you want to hear me talking about Jack and his cerebral palsy, I was actually on a popular podcast here in Australia, which is called the Two Peas in a Podcast podcast, talking to Gary Hills, the Two Peas podcast, it's T-O-O-2 Peas, is normally hosted by Mandy and Kate, but Gary's taken over to do the Chats with Dads, it's a podcast that specializes in talking to parents of kids with disabilities. And so it's a little bit of my story if you're interested in that. But I do know that Jack will be very disappointed that he is not telling you and the world that green skin and purple skin avocados do as good a job as anyone at selecting the land, tilling the soil, growing the plants, picking the fruit, transporting the fruit, and bringing to point of sale the perfect avocado that is the green skin and purple skin avocado. If you want to know more, there's recipes. There's general avocado paraphernalia at greenskinavocados.com.au. And now for our speech of the week. Well, we all know what it's going to be. It is the speech from Isra Muhammad delivered in the first week of December of 2015. She said in the interview that it's the Thursday speech. She delivered it every day to different year levels at Kenton School. And this was the Thursday speech and the one that she thought was the best. And certainly the widespread appeal of the speech, the spread of the speech, the fact that it landed on my speakola desk very soon after it was delivered as a heavily recommended speech from a lot of people. And it's been viewed many times on speakola and so many other platforms as well. And there's an opportunity now to hear it in full. Here she is, Isra Muhammad at the Kenton School in 2015. Um, hi, everyone. I'm sure most of you do know me. Um, so I want you all to have a look at the picture behind me. What are your thoughts on this picture? Keep those thoughts in mind. Hopefully by the end, you'll add to them or change some of them. So if you all don't know, I'm Muslim and I am proud. But after the events that took place in Paris, France on November 13th, there's a lot of negativity in the media about Islam. So in Google, if you go into Google and you type Muslim, Islam, or Muslim woman, these are some negative pictures that come up. People think that Muslim women or Muslim girls have no rights or have no freedom, but we do. Look at me, for example. I'm Muslim, 
I'm a girl, but I don't wear a headscarf. I have the right and freedom to wear one. My mum wants me to wear it, but she's given me the right and freedom of wearing one I feel comfortable enough. So what is Islam and what do we actually believe in? Islam is a beautiful religion, just like many others. It's a religion of peace and mercy. As a Muslim, I use the word Assalamu alaikum every day of my life. It's a wish for the other person to be blessed with peace. This is what it means to be Muslim. In Islam, we live by the five pillars. The first one, worshipping one God. The second one, the commitment of prayer. The third one, fasting in Ramadan. The fourth one, charity and giving back. And the fifth one, the pilgrim of Makkah, which you should do at least once in your lifetime. In this picture, the small dots are actually people. They are all Muslim. They are there worshipping God. This is what Islam is actually about, coming together as one. In Islam, even a smile is charity. But what is happening today? These are some negative headlines that come up online. And this is the latest one that came up this week. I want you all to know that these headlines are actually false. None of them are actually true. And this upsets me because the people behind this are usually ISIS. If you don't know who ISIS is, they are a terrorist organization. They cause nothing but harm and terror to the world, just like what happened in France. 129 lives were lost. But ISIS has one goal. They want countries like ours to reject Muslims. They'll be ecstatic and happy to hear that since the events that took place in Paris, France, Muslims have reportedly been threatened and attacked in the UK, America, Australia, and all around the world. This evil organization have in their minds, if they can get Muslims the enemy of the West, then Muslims in France, America, the UK, and Australia will have no one to turn but to ISIS. So if you are someone with a Facebook account, Twitter account, Instagram account, or any form of social media, which I'm sure everyone here has, and you are throwing out masses of hate, you are helping ISIS, you are supporting ISIS, this is what they want. So think about it. Do you want to be the person helping a terrorist organization? People think that ISIS only kills non-Muslims, but as a matter of fact, they don't. They also kill Muslims. Most of ISIS's victims are Muslims, like what's happening in Syria right now. Therefore, ISIS is not Muslim and it's not the face of Islam. In Islam, we believe whoever kills an innocent person is as if they've killed all of humanity. That's why all Muslims stand together against ISIS. Therefore, terrorism has no religion and terrorism is not the face of Islam. I had people come to me in school last week and last week telling me because I'm Muslim, I am a terrorist. And this is something I go through every day of my life. And it's became worse since what happened in France. But how has this affected Muslims around the world? If you haven't heard, on November 15th, a man pushes a Muslim woman into an oncoming underground train in London. Why? Because she was wearing a headscarf and she was Muslim. Imagine if you were that woman, having to wake up every day and walk out your door, knowing you will get attacked and threatened for doing what you believe. People also have this idea that refugees and immigrants are stealing the jobs, but they are not. Take my dad as an example. He's a doctor, and he's Muslim, and he's successful. He saves lives every day. He could have saved one of your relatives. People always think that refugees from Syria, I've seen this on Facebook, oh, they close the borders, they are ISIS, they're coming to destroy our country. For a matter of fact, ISIS took over their country. ISIS killed their loved ones. ISIS destroyed their homes. So how would you feel if that was you? Sitting at home, bombs going off, people dying. There's children who are coming into the UK with no families. So how would you feel if that was you in my situation? I have a seven-year-old sister. She came home from school last Monday, crying. When I asked why, she said to me, people are blaming me in school for the Paris attacks. 
said I don't want to go back. I have a brother in year seven. He got bullied last week. People are telling him, your religion is killing people. This is something I have to go through every day. People link us to terrorism, but we are not terrorists. They have hijacked our religion and used it against us. I was in Tesco's just last week. I walked in. The guy was like, these are the people we want out of our country. These are people you don't want around. So imagine if that was you coming into my country and I'm treating you this way. How would you feel? So what can we do about it? We can learn about each other's religions and cultures. We can stop making assumptions. We can be fair to one another. I remember, when you tell someone you are a terrorist because of your religion, it's a hate crime, and you have to report it once you view it. My name is Isra Muhammad. I am Muslim, and I am not a terrorist. Thank you. Well, that's it for another episode. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a little wait since the last one, the John Safran one. And I have put up a song I sang for John Safran, if you want to find that on the Patreon page. It's accessible to everyone. The Breakfasters fans amongst you may want to have a listen. It was me singing my If I Were John Safran Topol impression to send him off when he left the radio show we were on together in 2002. And I haven't put up that many special offerings on the Patreon page. But if you do have that RSS feed, you can listen to all the Speakola episodes without any promotions or any sprooks from me to join up on that front. It's patreon.com forward slash Speakola. I want to say some thank yous. A very big thank you to you, Isra Muhammad. What a fantastic interview and what a fantastic speech. Thanks for being a part of our Speakola podcast. I'd like to thank David Bridie for the theme music, as always. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Greenskin and Purple Skin Avocados, greenskinavocados.com.au, and the Podcast Reader. If you go to podread.org forward slash speakola, codename speakola, that'll get you three months free of the PDF. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. You can rate us at iTunes. You can send me feedback. I'm on Twitter at ByTonyWilson. That's at BYTonyWilson. I'm also on Instagram at that handle. And I'd love to hear from you. If you've got any feedback in relation to the podcast, does it go too long? Is my voice too monotonous? If you've got a guest recommendation, get in touch at ByTonyWilson. Thanks a lot for joining us. I'm still in the car. It's actually quite hot in here. I've become a glistening, sweaty mess for the old people to look out on. Oh, look. One of them's reaching for her phone. <laughs>